Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Matt Tebby. He co-founded Gravity Leadership and is planning a church, the Table Indie, in the northeast suburbs of Indianapolis. He's also the co-host of the recently launched Gravity Leadership Podcast. I give you Matt Tebby. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Full disclosure, we are friends, and you are a pastor in Indianapolis, the great capital city of Indiana. Crossroads of America. Crossroads of America. Great downtown. It's supremely walkable. Yeah, I did a wedding there for my cousin, Matt, at at the... it's like a train station converted to hotel. Yeah. Sort of. It's fantastic. Yeah. Union, Union Station. That was where I, in high school I went in, in my show choir. We can talk about that if you want. Uh, we would perform Christmas music at Union Station in this ancient train station. It was pretty cool. That's very exciting. I like that. So, and now you live there and you also run along with your friend Ben a organiz- an organization called Gravity leadership. Yes, there's a two friend Ben's who run it with me, Ben Hardman, Ben Sternke. We co-founded Gravity Leadership about five years ago. Yeah. Does that get confusing? Are they Ben 1 and Ben 2? Well, Sternke and Hardman are just not the kind of last names that roll off the tongue, you know, so there's a... Neither yeah, is Tebby, really. Well, a lot of people call me Tebby, uh, but yes, it does get confusing with two Ben's. Like, you need like a Smith. <laughs> That's or even like, even like a Goldman. It would or make like it... A, like religiously, like religiously, like you know, uh, more mysterious. Although stern kick it wouldn't doesn't sound to me like goyish immediately. But you know, there you go. And you guys were, operate, I guess, like throughout America. But do you do consulting stuff outside of America, North America? Yes. Yeah. So we have people that we coach in Australia, Europe, Canada, uh, a few missionaries in South America. So um, all over. Oh, and people that have been in uh, Southeast Asia as well, who, uh, you know, time zones make it difficult to connect regularly, but uh, yeah, all over the world. And you just start a podcast, so like Young MC, you are internationally known throughout the microphone. Yeah, I'm known to rock the microphone. Yeah, Scott, so we started a podcast, been getting good reviews. Actually, one of the reviews is hysterical, it mentions how my sense of humor grows on you. So uh, the people who get past... Uh, my bad jokes. The first couple episodes and press on, they actually end up liking it. So it's going ha- pretty well. You have said something that you, you have like you laugh at yourself sincerely sometimes, which I find endearing. Like it's a very sincere laughing at yourself. Yeah. It's definitely not insincere. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think we have fun with it. I, I don't, I don't have an imagination for how to do something as regular and as disciplined as a podcast, and for it not to be enjoyable and fun. And uh, the kind of community that the Bens and I have, we end up laughing a lot at ourselves, making ourselves laugh. So it's a good time. So this is you. You consult pretty much with with churches and religious organizations, right? Like that's that's pretty much who you guys work with. Yep, at this point, yeah. But your own sort of like, how did you kind of get into like the Christian thing? Like, how, like, how did you find your way? Because this wasn't like a completely inherited thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I was raised in a religious home, uh, fairly traditional religious home. We seldom missed a Sunday at a church. Uh, but what kind of church? Things, are we, what are we talking? What kind of church are we talking? This is a Roman Catholic church. Um, but, you know, it was 58, 59 minutes. I would bring a book. 
I would sort of, there were, there were liturgical cues I would hear that would indicate to me we're almost done. I knew, you know, when we went up for communion, I had seven minutes left. There were all these things. It was just kind of getting to the end of it. So when I went to college. And, when, and they, what they would say, as we come to this Eucharist, that's when you know the homily is ending, right? Like that's I, like, put, put your trays up, fasten your seatbelts. You'll see that, you'll see that, you know, do not walk an aisle sign. It's kind of like we're landing the plane now. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing I cared about is I'm out of here in seven minutes, right? So. It wasn't that I disbelieved in God. He just was a he just was sort of an idle curiosity like Shakespeare or Plato, you know. He just didn't make much of a difference. But when I went to college, I it was well, a which growing like, up as as like an adolescent, like that's pretty low. Shakespeare yeah. and Plato, like those are not <clears throat> I mean, yeah, I uh, important people who know a lot of things seem to care about this. So I'm sure it's helpful. I just don't give a rip, right? That's that sort of was my posture. So then uh, when I when I got to call the shots, you know, when I had a little autonomy, it was a little like a rum springer, and I just stopped. Uh, actually, I didn't stop going to church. I went to a Protestant church that would pay me money to sing in their choir. So I made forty bucks a Sunday to sit in this ancient Methodist church in in downtown Cincinnati and be one of fifteen choir members, most of whom were paid college students to sing ancient hymns. So that's so that was my rum springer. Uh, For an hourly fee, that's pretty good. It was decent cash, man. Like I'm guessing you're not you're not rehearsing like six hours a week or something. We would get there like 30 minutes early. We would sing for 20 minutes in the service, and we could actually file out. We had, we wore robes. We'd file out and leave. And you know, we were I think we were paid in cash. <laughs> it was just a great sort of under the table deal in college. I was going to ask, did you have to report that income? But obviously I, not. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. So, yeah, but then you wound up eventually in evangelical Protestant circles. So, so how do you, how does one go from Catholic rumspringa to high paid celebrity Cincinnati choir singer <laughs> into a kind of, you're not just, I mean, it's like the hair club for men thing, right? You know, I'm not just uh, the president of hair club for men. I'm, I'm, I'm a client. Like, you're not just, you know, a member of the evangelical Protestant movement. You're like a religious professional in it. So, like, how do you, that sounds like an interesting transition. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I was, uh, I was actually a musical theater major in Cincinnati and became thoroughly miserable doing it. Um, not because uh, of anything external to me. I think internally, I was looking for musical theater uh, to deliver me something that was essentially a religious. It was a religious pursuit in a, a thoroughly secular kind of endeavor. And it just made me miserable. It made me really anxious and afraid and uh, wasn't happy. And I made this agreement as a kid. I remember watching adults who worked their nine to fives and they were miserable. And I remember thinking, I can't imagine having like the ability to choose what I do and choosing misery day after day. And, and I realized, I woke up my sophomore year of college, realized I was choosing misery day after day. And I decided, enough with this. This is rubbish. And so I, I transferred to a liberal arts school. Did you, did you use the word rubbish as a college student? This uh, is rubbish. I think I used, I think I, I think I said, this is bullshit. Because, I was going to say, I was yeah, going to say, that's really a geeky know, way to describe it. That, you... Yeah, it is a geeky way to describe it. And, you know, that's sort of the, the rumspringa way to describe it is this is bullshit. So, I, I just came home, I lived for a quarter at home, and then enrolled at a small liberal arts college in Indiana. I'm from Indiana. And uh, my, my journey back to, like, two faith. When or, I drove into Indiana, I noticed there were a lot of signs for booze, like Jesus and firecrackers, when you pull in from Ohio, right? Like, that's yeah, like, man. I was like, to, this is very interesting. They're very into Jesus, and they're very into, like, discount liquor and fireworks. If you put those three together, you can have a pretty good time. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, so, I'm not denying that. I mean, right. I'm not at all. It's a poor man's Vegas. So, <laughs> a very, very poor man's Vegas. Yeah, very, yeah some destitute some malt, even. Some malt liquor, some firecrackers, and some Billy Graham, and there you go. So we, I came, I went to DePaul. It's a small liberal arts college in Indiana, and uh, Dan Quayle went to DePaul and played did. on the golf team. He did. I, I'm surprised you knew that. Uh, don't ask Dan Quayle how to spell DePaul, but he did go there. He he and I. Uh, I wouldn't ask him to spell anything. <laughs> He and I uh, were uh, not there at the same time, obviously, but uh, I went there because my girlfriend at the time was there, and a day before I moved to campus, my girlfriend of three years, I broke up with her. And so I came to campus, I knew that's no an aw- That's an awkward move-in thing, right? Like, Yeah, well, I was an awkward 20-year-old man. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't the refined, sophisticated gentleman you see today. I was... <laughs> I was pretty awkward. So yeah, I mean, it was a relationship that probably needed to end a year before that, and I did. I lacked the courage and the fortitude to do that. But anyway, I, I came to campus. Sort of, she was really mad at me, justifiably so, and had no friends. And I fell in with this. Were, uh, did her fr- were her friends like? There's that jerk when you'd walk around. Camp- like, I mean, how I was just, it like? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I got glares, man, glares and stares. Was she powerful socially, or was she like? I mean, because that's the thing. If she was a big figure there, because DePaul is not a huge school, right? No, it was like twenty two hundred students, but it was very Greek. So about seventy five percent Greek housing, and she was in a sorority. So within her sorority, she uh, had a lot of gravitas. But I stayed away from that sorority, and so rarely interacted with her or saw her friends, which is uh, beneficial to my social life and emotional healing. Because it was rough. It was rough for me. All jokes aside, uh, but you know, I needed friends and. You know, Christians can actually be really good friends. I hear that. I like, uh, <laughs> you know, for instance, Franklin Graham has been a dear friend to our current president. I mean, there are lots. I mean, yes. so is that guy Jeffries, Jeffries in Dallas. Jeffers. 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 That sounds yeah. like a dorky nickname for the. Hey, Jeffers, how's the Jeffer? <laughs> how's the Jeffers? Jeffy like, McJefferson. Yeah. Yeah. So these Christians, I, I waited tables at another sorority um, just to A, meet. Uh, you you waited tables at a sorority? Were they like getting drunk and sexually harassing you? I mean, was it a wild sorority? Uh, they were not wild. There were other wild sororities. No, they they were known as having the best food. And at the time, I was a vegetarian. I needed to. I was in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. I needed good culinary options for a vegetarian. And uh, this sorority provided provided it because a lot of the girls were vegetarian. Many of the girls, unfortunately. Uh, did not eat healthy, uh, but they had really good food. And so I, I chose it for that reason, didn't know anybody there, and befriended other waiters who waited tables with me who were Christians, like half of them were. And uh, we would just get into these lively conversations about Jesus, God, the Bible. Um, and I had lots of opinions about that stuff, you know? And I would, I would say heretical things or drop F-bombs and, or... Uh, you know, just uh, just wildly harebrained kind of notions about God and about, <clears throat> you know, and they and they sort of took a interest in it, and we would go back and forth, but they they were able to uh, not let the ideas I believed uh, interfere with the relationship we had. So your ability, you, they let you express yourself, even when it was gently irreverent. They were fine. Like they didn't try to control you or fit you into their box. They were. They kind of accepted you. Yes, just as you were. And I'd never had friendships like that. Like I'd never had friendships that weren't based upon affinity or um, people who were. As a growing up as a performer, I I knew a lot of other performers, which um, 
kind of the worst of performer theater culture is everybody looking for a mutual admirer that they can have a codependent relationship with. And so I had, I sort of had that going on as well as just fans, people who wanted to be with me because they thought I was important or special or held me in esteem. And these guys that I befriended uh, didn't have, didn't know what I could do. I wasn't performing there. I was a history major and they genuinely cared for me. And it was like a, it was a palpable relational distinctive that for me as a, you know, lonely 20 year old, just important, really important. So yeah, I became a Christian. (laughs) It was almost like, Here's some people that... No, take- what, what did that involve? Was there like yeah. a baptism? Was there a sign-up sheet? Was there a certificate? Like you are now a Christian. Yeah, that, there was a was ceremony. There a cor- there was six a week, ceremony. Six week with- course? Like well, six there- week... <laughs> there was a ceremony with some firecrackers and some booze. Right. And-, <laughs> and Jesus. And Jesus was there. No, I. It, what did it entail? It entailed a few things. One, um, it entailed me realizing Jesus wasn't just this fashionable idea or interesting sort of uh, uh, philosophy. But if you, if you took what he said seriously, it, it created a community that was attractive and livable and winsome and desirable for me. Like, you know, things like forgiveness, things like kindness, things like patience, things like being slow to anger and self-controlled. These weren't things that I experienced in a uh, great measure growing up. And I just realized, like, these people know how to live Jesus in a way that makes better sense of life than the way I currently live. So it was, it was very much a, I want the kind of life these young people have or these peers have. And so uh, I think for me, it wasn't so much like overcoming, you know, metaphysical or cosmological arguments for God's existence, but rather it was just like, oh, okay, all this stuff I heard growing up, this is what it's for. This is what it can do. I'm down with so, it. I'm down with that. So- so you weren't like plagued with religious skepticism. It was a problem of like religious relevance. Like it wasn't that you were sitting around like a rabid intellectually infused atheist or something, but you just, it just didn't occur to you to disbelieve or really believe with any kind of self-involvement fervently yeah. in God either. Yeah. I was an, I was an apatheist. You should copyright that. That should yeah. be a book title. Apatheist. Deliver us from apatheism. Yeah. That's, that's how it felt. I mean, I was an apatheist. And a lot of people, I find a lot of people are apatheists unless they've got, um, unless they're post-Christians and have had a lot of disillusionment, disappointment, or trauma they've experienced in the church. And then they're either agnostics or if they, if they have sufficient courage, they become atheists. So I, I hadn't really experienced uh, religious trauma or uh, spiritual abuse as a kid. So I was just kind of like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't see a tangible, concrete relevance to my life, or benefit even, right? So, so, so you go from like apathetic to, hey, I'm on the team, I, I'm, 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 I'm into this, and I want to even consider this as like a job, a career, a profession, to be involved in, in kind of religious, you know, community organizing kind of religious activity, like ministry. No. Okay. No. 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 At, first, at first I thought, okay, I'm a, I'm, I became a Christian. It was a slow sort of awakening, opening up to being a Christian. And I, I just realized, hey, um, this is why I came to DePaul. I'm going to go, I'm going to go perform in New York City. Uh, and I'm going to sort of be a a Christian in the theater scene in New York, which is a little like a Luddite at a at a Mac convention, you know, uh, kind of a rare duck there. So that was my plan. And the, the woman I started dating in college after my breakup, uh, she was an accountant. She got a job at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Manhattan. She big one. Of, That's a big one. Yeah, it's a, she's a big deal. And we were all set to move. We're going to get married the summer of 2000 and move to Manhattan. And uh, something happened that summer. I was leading worship at a church in Indianapolis, 
and uh, both of us got sort of like this sense, this heavy sense that we were not supposed to move to New York, that I was supposed to stay in Indy and do ministry, and she was supposed to stay there as well and work for her family accounting firm. And I remember when we told her family that, they kind of lost their biscuit. Like, they were not happy. This was like a big deal for their daughter to get this uh, big five accounting job in New York. Uh, and I was staying around, staying back in Indy to work a ministry job. I was making like 20K, and they saw this as like, uh, who is our, who's our daughter married, this uh, irresponsible uh, religious ra- uh, ragamuffin? So anyway... Uh, we didn't go to New York, <clears throat> and I stayed in India. I was leading worship at a church, uh, and I had I had it in mind to go to law school and do ministry, kind of as a side hustle. Hey, <laughs> lots of very lots of people do that. You know? <laughs> well, a lot of people do uh, religion as their main hustle. Uh, I was going to make it my side hustle, and I I uh, I got uh, you know there's a, there are a few times in my life where you have. Uh, things that happen to you, at least for me, a few times in my life where I can't find another explanation other than God's providence. Like, if God's providence doesn't exist, then this never would have happened. This is one of those events. I went from going to law school in June to August of that year, this is 2001, to becoming a junior high youth pastor at the church I was leading worship at. And uh, that that started a three-year adventure in full-time ministry for me. Lots of pheromones, lots of raging hormones, lots of like kids like throwing stuff at each other yeah lots of duct tape fake vomit marshmallows uh late nights mountain dew yeah it was crazy i i mean i to this day i don't know how i had the grace for that job i just i'm not your typical sort of um yeah i'm not your typical youth pastor but it was a great experience for me and I, i ended up leaving there to go to seminary where i sort of realized i can't not at some point Scott, it was like, I can't not do ministry. If I tried to do anything else other than become a, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, other than become like a professional Christian, get paid for it, I, I think I would be miserable. So that that was kind of the beginning. I, I tried to go into theater. I tried to be a lawyer and other things were in store. You could have been a theatrical lawyer. But, but <laughs> so, so, okay, you at this point, would you have self-identified as an evangelical or conservative evangelical or something? Because you went to Trinity in Chicago, right? I did, yeah. So at Which that is point... Which a, is a fairly conservative institution, right? I mean, like, at least like center-right, would you say, uh, on, the, I, on the religious landscape? I guess. I mean, if you put... It depends on the landscape you're talking about. There, there, are, there, are, there are some organizations that would be more conservative than Trinity, but just not many. I would say not many. Um, so yeah, right center is what I would say. Not center right. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was there. There was this moment after college, before marriage, where I realized I don't think I'm Catholic anymore. And it 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 first started with just me trying to find young Catholic people that wanted to follow Jesus and and take this stuff seriously and go for it. And I just couldn't find many. Now things have changed in the Roman Catholic Church in the last twenty years. Uh, great renewal and and vibrancy of faith exists there. But in my little neck of the woods in the early two thousands, there wasn't much interest or uh, activity uh, among young people. Um, and so I, I, I sort of woke up one day and realized I don't think I'm Catholic anymore. And the only sort of, the only sort of imagination I had for what it meant to be a faithful Christian was the, the loudest, sort of strongest appealing to what faithful Christianity looks like, which was a very conservative, very reformed brand of Christianity. So I went to Trinity um, not knowing that it was kind of the conservative, reformed epicenter of... Uh, the Midwest, but I uh, was really happy when I fa- found that out. And then when I left Trinity three years later, sort of, I had been disabused of a lot of that sort of early 
conservative Reformed theology. So, so if somebody's listening and they're not particularly religious, or and, and they know, I mean, it, uh, evangelicalism is 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 popular. It's been popular over the last few years because of its political connotations, and people start to pay attention to that more. But but this would be a specific type of evangelical, right? Conservative Christian that is 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 very self reflectively doctrinal, right? Like it, it, that 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 sort of having a a theological system kind of down and understood and, and, and being able to sort of distinguish yourself from other types of Christians by that system. That's at, at, at part of, you know, at the heart of that kind of movement, at least in part, right? Right. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a uh, focus and an emphasis on the Bible. Uh, and so, for instance, my course load as a master's of divinity included almost a third of my coursework was on being able to learn languages that the Bible is written in and be able to preach uh, on on the Bible, um, because that was seen as sort of the epicenter or the foundation of a, fa- uh, a faithful faith. Uh, on you know, so uh, other other Christian seminaries maybe would have you would have done a lot of uh, clinical pastoral um, counseling or uh, hospital visits, chaplaincies, or or things like that. And I didn't have to do any of that uh, because what was needed in the world was uh, the Bible taught well. So, so someone's on their deathbed in the hospital, you teach them some Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you, honestly, like, I, looking back, probably, right, parse this verb, but I, 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 I didn't, I never had to, I never had to sit with somebody who was dying as a part of my seminary experience, and it, it was detrimental to my spiritual formation. Um, and, and, you know, they, there was a lot of artifacts around the campus that sort of indicated the importance, what we, what we emphasize here is thinking and talking about what we've thought about. And that might be true of any academic institution, but uh, in particular, I can only speak to mine. Uh, so personally, in particular, there were a lot of artifacts that indicated, you know, sort of a, a Bible-centered, bibliocentric focus. And you, so, I mean, I know you a little bit, and and, and that kind of place is not where you are now. I mean, that like, you would definitely say, you even alluded to the fact that you were kind of jaded by the end of it. So, what what did you get moved to, into, toward from your position of disillusionment? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. So, part of my conversion, I think I'm, I think I'm preoccupied, singularity, Scott, with how do we live well? You know, what, what, how do we live flourishing? Live your best life now, as oh. they say. Yeah. See, now you're talking my language. No, I kind of... I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald 
Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. How do we live in a, in a virtuous, flourishing way, and not just as individuals, but as persons in community with each other? And for me, one of the things I realized in seminary was I thought it was going to be Mecca. I thought it was going to be like this Christian mountaintop. You know, I, I would come down with stone tablets, and the heavens would open, and uh, angels would be ascending and descending on uh, the Word of God and all this stuff. And it was a desert for me. You know, it was an, a desert. Uh, I came up against my own sort of metaphysical and epistemological questions. Uh, I came thoroughly modernistic and uh, had a postmodern sort of crisis deconstructive kind of moment in seminary. But really what it boiled down to me was the paragons of, the paragons of faith that were held up as the people who we learned from, the people who had arrived in this in this sort of brand of Christianity, uh, the closer I got to them, the less I wanted to be like them. Is that because like they're particularly morally offensive people, or just because they just feel disconnected from what felt like maybe was most real about your own conversion in college? That there was a sort of ex- expression of faith that was kind of existential and relational. Yeah, I think I think it has more to do with the fact that I I just didn't want to be like them. Uh, th- there was a rigidity and a certitude, and um, so, sort of I. So, so I became enraptured while I was there I, with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the fruit of the Spirit, and like, you know, these qualities of life that were really hard to try harder to inhabit. So it's really hard to try harder to be patient, right? And, and I realized that um, it's not really hard to try harder to be certain or to win an argument. Like, I could actually, I could actually in the, my own... My own faculties, my own power as a human, uh, increase my competency, my knowledge, and my ability to win an argument. But I, I had less success in in using that same uh, will of uh, force of the will to become more patient or kind or peaceful. And so that that was part of it. Um, the other part of it is I was an angry man, dude. Uh, wait, 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 what were you angry at? Um existential meaninglessness. No, I was, I mean, that's part of it. I, I was mad at, so my parents got uh, divorced when I was a young kid and I made this deep agreement as a little kid to try to save their marriage and then I failed. And so I, I blame that's, my, that's not, So that's not anything any kid should do, right? Just uh, I wouldn't recommend it. So <laughs> if, if you're seven and you're listening, uh, that's a failed experiment. Um, my no, niece I, is my niece is seven, and she's been a guest on the show, but I don't think she listens. <laughs> uh, but if you're 17 or 70, and um, you you may be able to relate to this, so I I just held I I resented my mom, was angry at my mom, and grew up kind of afraid and scared of my dad, and realized that like being afraid and angry was sort of the modus of the operating system I ran on, and uh, I I found a church when I was at Trinity that was. Very different, very different theological tradition than than most of the professors at Trinity, and uh, there was a there was a guy there who was about twenty years older than me, and um, eventually, like a year later, I became a pastor alongside this guy, 
his name's Dave, and another guy named Jeff. And uh, the gates of I unleash the gates of hell in that in that triumphant relationship. All my anger and all my fear like was on display in really embarrassing ways. I mean, I think back on it, and I acted like a cotton-headed Nittymoggins. Uh, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Uh, an, an asshole. You know. Oh, okay. A, yeah, like just an idiot. I, I, okay. Yeah, just just uh, just treating people really poorly. And it was in the context of that relationship with Dave and Jeff that I, I realized um, there's again I realized there's a better way to live. That I found some healing for my anger and anxiety, and it came out of different theological commitments and orientation in the world than my seminary. So my my theological conversion even happened in the context of relationships and my own transformation. And so you you spent some time at that church that was and it sounds like the acceptance there was meaningful that you could actually be you could get the anger out in a place where you didn't you weren't shunned bro yes i think uh, regardless of regardless of how like how you make sense of the world uh, one of the most transformational spaces for humans is where the worst can be known and experienced about you and you don't receive less love but more i, I think that's completely like right on you Regardless of what you believe, yeah, Frank Lake, the psychiatrist, talks about this. That it, like that, it's zero to two. It, ma- it the whole world is bound up with whether you learn the message that acceptance is a gift or it's a reward. Yeah, and we we can abstract, we can conceptualize acceptance, but the the embodied extension of acceptance from one human to another in the midst of your own badness and shame and sh- and like just your shit show like that that has the power to transform the human person the human self and that's what happened to me i mean dave the guy who's 20 years older than me had went through his own sort of like um got the ego kicked out of him when he was a younger man and i would just let him have it and i was used to i mean i, I sort of control my world with my mouth and my mind so i was used to sort of getting mad uh speaking a lot of words and winning because of either people didn't want to deal with my anger or because I was fairly persuasive. And every time I would let Dave have it, he would just look at me and I'd be arguing some important theological point or being mad at him because he didn't prepare for a meeting. or, And he would just say, hey, hey, uh, you you seem really upset right now, Matt. Are you okay? And and like, he, he sort of like, he was like hugging a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. And, mm. and, and that's how it felt. Like he was hugging, you know, to get sort of psychological here, he's like hugging my inner child that was throwing a tantrum. And he refused to let go. And that completely changed my life. Completely mm. changed my life. And impacts almost everything we do at Gravity Leadership in a, in a tangible way. This is like, you know, the old uh, classic Reformation term is like imputation, right? They treat you, somebody treats you like sort of better than you are. Like they don't treat you like you're the angry uh, in your face. They, they treat you with like empathy, understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. By the way. Yeah, they, I mean that's that's my understanding of grace. Grace is giving of oneself to another in relationship unconditionally. And so Dave was able. He didn't do it perfectly. I mean, he's got his stuff, but he was able consistently in in because we co-pastored together. We were in sort of a covenant relationship together. We, you know, it was more than a job. We we sort of were in this together. And he just moved closer to me uh, when I sinned against him. He didn't move away from me or withdraw or or. You know, he's one of the few people that I knew at the time who could actually win the battle I wanted to have with him. That's, I mean, that's the thing. He could have put me in my place. He could have run circles around me intellectually, and instead, he chose to lay down his life for me. And that uh, that converted me to a whole different understanding of Jesus and the gospel. And that it seems like has shaped what gravity leadership is about, right? I mean, yes. I mean there are lots of church. Like, if I'm a church 
person or a, a religious professional or community that's seeking to kind of impact the world, you know, a, a Christian community, then there's lots of different options for consulting kind of organizations, right? They, there are no shortage of these things. So, right. But what, I mean, it sounds like your own experience has sort of shaped what you would say is the DNA of gravity, right? Yeah, right. So that, uh, you know, both my experience in college with these these friends and my experience with Dave and, and subsequent experiences with, you know, Dave was, my, my relationship with Dave was about 10 years ago. And since then, I've had other relationships with leaders that didn't have the same character and c- capacities that Dave had. It's just clarified for me uh, that that the the important the important the most important part in leadership is the space in between. It's 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 the force that we are utilizing to draw things together and move things uh, in a direction. So, what what is the force that's moving or directing or orienting this community, this organization, this business, this church? Uh, and and it's fundamentally about the relationships in that system, that organization. So completely, it's it's transformed the way that we do things. So I think a lot of times then, uh, you know, consulting, coaching organizations talk a lot about, oh, here's how you get your ideas executed, or here's how you persuade and influence people to do what you want them to do. And, and for us, uh, we, I think a lot of issues in organizations is when relationships are primarily th- thought of as in utility. So what can this person do for me? Or how can I use this person to achieve my goal? Uh, rather than relationships thought of more systemically or organically in terms of how do I develop and empower and invest in these persons so that they can flourish within this system as we move towards this goal. So this is like in, in Friedman's book, right? Failure of Nerve, where he says yeah. that, like, that he thinks that like, Contrary to some social scientists and consultants, that that a family, a military unit, a hospital, and a church are all a lot more like each other than different. Yes, that that some basic relational principles really are involved in all of them. And if you know that, that that you, it sounds like you're on that side of the line. That that, that relationships are, and they're not. They don't radically change. The nature of what makes healthy relationships doesn't radically change because the organizational context looks a little different. No, there's a there's a there's a law or. Um, an organizational logic that governs all systems, right? So, so Friedman was an expert at systems theory, which impacts a lot of of what we do. Um, and I think that there's a, you know, he's he's playing off this emerging quantum metaphysic that came up, that's been emerging in the last hundred plus years or so, where we're understanding actually the fabric of reality differently, and it makes it gives us new language and metaphors to talk about how humans function in relationships and networks of relationships to each other. So yeah, Friedman was uh, has been hugely important for us um uh, as well as uh as well as Jesus, Scott. Jesus is important. He's been and, important and, to us. And in, in, in my experience, it's very, you know, if, especially if you're a Christian, y- you want Jesus to be of some significance with what you're doing, I guess. Yeah, I just think he was I mean, he's known for being uh, kind of a, a big deal in religious circles because he knows a lot about God, but I think he actually knows a lot about anthropology, sociology, psychology. I think he actually understands, one of his geniuses is that he understands how humans work. Uh, and so one of the things we do at Gravity is look at how Jesus interacts and relates to people. Um, and and some of the things he does in leadership scandalize us. I mean, he seldom, seldom, contr- I mean, I, and I'm willing to be wrong about this, but he, I can't find one instance where he coerces or controls anybody to do what he wants. He's ruthless about, about calling people into a vision of reality that he thinks 
is legit. But then giving people full freedom to say no or yes, depending upon what they want and where their desires are. So there's just there's this calling in. At the same time, he's asking people to reckon with what do you really want. Um, and so th- this dual sort of like um, freedom, empowering freedom, but also directive call in that freedom is, uh, I think, built upon Jesus's understanding of of how humans flourish and what they're made for. Yeah, I, I often think that the reason why Brene Brown is so popular is because I think she echoes some of the basic things you'd see. You know, when Jesus says, if you try to lose your life, if you, if you try to save your life for self-preservation and build a bunch of walls, that you'll you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, then you'll find it, you'll save it. And, you know, when Brene Brown talks about shame research, you know, the thing about shame is, Everybody has it, and the 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 less no one wants to talk about, it, but the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Yes, and and this kind of sense that for Jesus, right? Like like it, when you get the bottom knocked out of your humanity, it actually opens you up to the fullness of life, rather than takes away your potential to flourish and thrive. Yes, and this is, I mean, a lot of my even my understanding of what religion wanted to do for me in my life was about using, this is early on as a young man, <clears throat> using and leveraging the shame I felt to help me behave better. So, so it was almost like religion was there to capitalize on my shame as a way to get me to conform to a norm that I was told if I was able to conform to this norm, I wouldn't feel any more shame. I've heard Tim Keller say this, that most of, is a pastor from New York City, and he says, you know, most of the way we parent, even as Christians, is based on fear and shame. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Don't don't do this, or else you you'll feel terrible by yourself, or you'll be outed as a terrible person. Right, and actually, I mean, there's there's uh, lines to draw, analogous lines to draw from parenting and leadership, because I think a lot of a lot of leaders who get things done, who are known to be effective leaders, they some of them knowingly do this, but most of them, I think, uh, aren't. Um, they're not maliciously doing this, but they use uh, fear and shame, and I would say even guilt to move people to either please them or to perform better so they, they, they release this existential sort of guilt they have of not having done enough, or, or as a way to, as a way to uh, there's promised belonging, there's promised acceptance on the other end of this thing I want you to do, and I'll, I'll withhold, right? I think of Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development. Uh, <laughs> you know, her, her kids joke all the time that she's so withholding. But I withhold my uh, esteem and affection from you unless you do what I want you to do. And so there's these toxic, churches function like this, but you know, businesses do too. There's these toxic motivations that live underneath the surface. And I think highly perceptive, perceptive, highly intuitive leaders pull these levers without knowing they do it because they work. They, they, they're able to deliver uh, bottom line results. People will perform to compensate for their fear, guilt, and shame. Right, especially if you come to a community and uh, so you go to church and you are ridden with sort of you know deep woundedness for, that, that many people have, many from family systems, stuff from growing up, from yeah. alienation. And then if somebody says to you, "Well, memorize this religious teaching and system, or get all about the vision of dreamscape community, kick-ass." Koinonia fellowship or whatever then you'll oftentimes that distracts you from what you really need to deal with but in the distraction it's like well okay that i'll forget it you know i'll forget about that stuff it it distracts me from the stuff that's really keeping me from flourishing that really needs healing and and engagement but you know i I, i'll get a to-do list existentially or intellectually or activity wise that will sort of at least distract me yeah 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 so we're looking to medicate compensate 
uh, for our antipathies, for the things that actually don't lead to human flourishing, which I would say are fear and shame and some kinds of toxic guilt. You know, if I'm, uh, if I'm throwing babies into the middle of oncoming traffic, it's okay to feel guilty about that. You know what I'm saying? But there's other, there's other kinds of toxic guilt, I think, that live. And, it, and, and frankly, it's okay for me to be afraid of uh, tap dancing in the middle of an interstate. So there's a healthy fear that keeps us alive. There's a healthy guilt that tells us, hey, this isn't leading to the common good. But it becomes toxic in us when it becomes the primary thing we're moving or being motivated out of. And, I, and this is why we started Gravity Leadership is because I realized that uh, there's very few Christians, although I've talked to one a few months ago who told me that uh, he doesn't know how to live the Christian life without shame. Uh, and <laughs> and I, I literally had no idea what to say to him. Shame has been so helpful for me, and I just thought, God bless you. So, so instead of the purpose-driven life, it'd be the shame-driven life. I know. I, I just I couldn't, I just didn't know what to say. So I just said, you know, God bless you. Um, tell me how that works out for you. Uh, but there, there is a better way of of conforming sort of our desire, our desires formed and shaped around, I would say, love uh, rather than fear, guilt, and shame. And so that's that's one of the heartbeats. That's the gravity in gravity leadership. Gravity is the love uh, that we see revealed in Jesus. That love becoming the epicenter of our desiring and and willing. Uh, centers in in leadership as leaders and as participants in these systems. So if somebody wants to connect with gravity or or get a feel for it, I mean, is the podcast a good go-to place right now? Like, is that, is that a good entry point to get an introduction for like what the DNA of gravity is like, looks and feels like, or sounds like? Yeah. If you listen to our podcast, uh, we just podcasted through like seven axioms for uh, what, like kind of how we how we see the Christian life and how we train leaders to to live. <clears throat> if you listen to those axioms and you're like, uh, they get you fired up, or they they speak and name things that you and they they could put words on intuitions you've had, then you probably will jive with us. Uh, we also have we put out articles and and blog posts and have a, a newsletter, a mailing list that goes out. You can sign up on our website, gravityleadership.com. Those are those are the two main ways to sort of interface. And and I, honestly, I talk as many people out of working with us as I do. Uh, who call me, who, who I say, yes, we can work with you. Because frankly, um, I, I, don't have, I don't have the energy or the competency of convincing people that there's a better way to lead. I, I, I want to I sort of hold it out there. And if, it, if it's attractive to you, if something in you says yes, then let's go. Let's, let's, uh, let's dance. It's probably not great for your bottom line that you're talking people out of it. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a great businessman. But, um, but I honestly, I don't, know, I don't know how else to live. So if if somebody people that do find it useful or helpful, I mean, what if you just had to summarize what they've found, like when they've connected with gravity? And I know several people you've worked with, but how would they? What you commonly hear is kind of a takeaway from what they're learning as they engage your axioms with you and community and coaching. Yes, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think there's a reenchantment of everyday life. I think people. People experience an awakening to the possibility and the actuality of how of how God is present and at work everywhere, and so there's then this this um, almost like everyday mysticism or everyday contemplation that that doesn't have like incense and icons and chanting in my prayer closet, but regular rather like as I'm as I'm talking to the barista at Starbucks, there's this mystical place opened up. Where I'm encountering this person, but I'm also encountering like the triune God, and and I'm connected 
in a way that it wasn't before. I, I just got a, a voice text yesterday from a friend of mine who's in Colorado. And she uh, she was talking to me. She's like, she's a children's director of a church in, in Colorado. She said, hey, I just want you to know, Matt, this morning I absolutely dropped the ball on like two or three really important things. And I, I completely blew it. Like it was all my fault and it was awful. And, and like she says that and I'm like ready for her to say, and I got fired or like, <laughs> and my and my husband's <laughs> leaving me. Like I'm I'm really ready for like the worst case scenario because of how bad it sounded. And she said, I just want you to know that two years ago I would have gone into overfunctioning mode and I would have overcompensated the rest of the week out of my shame to to sort of redouble my efforts to prove myself to make up for this to show other people, God and my boss, that I am competent, and it would have been all anxiety driven, and it would have been at the cost of my own personal health, my marriage, and my family. And she said, I just want you to know that like, I was able in that moment to notice the shame that was seeking to take hold. So you mentioned Brene Brown earlier. A lot of work we do with people is actually training people to live a lot of what Brene Brown talks about in terms of recognizing when your shame spiral hits. And so she just noticed it. And then and one, another thing we do is um, like developing an imagination that's full of good news. So developing an imagination that ha- that's like if Jesus, if Jesus were walking alongside you as you blew it, like how would he extend good news to you? Uh, good news about God and good news about who you are and good news about your vocation in the world. Uh, rather than like, come on, get your act together. Or I can't believe you did this. You know, you're a 40-year-old woman, get your act together. Or if anybody sees this, they're going to know you're a fraud. Like all of these messages are not good news, but they're what we live out of. So she recognized it and she said, I want you to know that like, even though I wasn't able to fix any of the wrong I did, she said, I'm living right now in the good news of who God is and who I am because of who God is. And there is freedom and peace and joy in the midst of my failure that I've just never experienced before. And so, like, you know, it's just a message yesterday. I think I think what the fruit of what we do is people experience a greater capacity for non, non-anxious presence with people. They experience a greater uh, like awareness, mindfulness, like an everyday mindfulness. So I know a lot of us practice mindfulness as this discrete practice, but actually living mindfully. Uh, and, then, and then becoming people who know how to share good news, not just sort of a, a threat, about you know uh, what will happen if you don't turn to Jesus or uh, good advice or good ideas. No, but actually a, de- a proclamation full of God's goodness and truth and grace, uh, not only receiving that personally, but being able to extend that to others are just some of the things that people who go through our training are able to do. That is a pretty strong commendation that, I mean, that, that's incredibly powerful. And I, I'd recommend to anybody listening that, if they're looking for those sorts of things, that the gravity is a great place to go and check out their podcast. They've just launched. It's great listening. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Matt, and talking with me about this stuff. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Matt for coming on the podcast and do check out his Gravity Leadership Podcast. It's well worth a listen. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.